The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So good morning. Welcome to the third session of our series on the holistic path. This is our third and final where we're going to talk about the the wisdom steps of the path, which are called the Panya steps of the path. And just as a brief review, the steps of the path, the eight steps, are right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And we began by talking about the sila steps of the path, the ones related to ethical conduct, which are speech, action, and livelihood. And then we talked about the ones related more to mental development and cultivation, meditation, which are called the samadhi steps of the path, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. And so today we'll talk about the remaining two steps, which are view and intention, And these are called the panya, or wisdom, steps of the path. So, let me say first of all that the word right is the word that I prefer, but some people would use the word wise if it sounds too much like right and wrong. If that doesn't work for you, you can use wise. The intention of the word right is that it's appropriate. You know, it is appropriate, uh, aligned, harmonious kind of way of doing each of these steps. So it's interesting, isn't it, that um, right view and right intention are the first two steps of the path in the traditional way that I read it. But here we are talking about them last. (laughs) And the the first thing we talked about were steps three, four, and five, the sila steps. So how does that work? the, the panya, or wisdom portion of the path, is the area where we can most clearly see what might be called the wraparound effect of the, of the path. As we practice it, uh, it's really a spiral. We're not just going from number one up to number eight. It's very much that we deepen our understanding of all of the steps as we undertake the path of practice. And so these, all the steps are continually developing. And these three segments that I'm talking about are, are useful conceptual ways of organizing the path. They're domains of work that we do, but they don't necessarily go linearly. And in fact, as we develop each section of them, then the other ones can correspondingly deepen into this spiral effect. And we'll see how that goes because I'll talk about a couple different dimensions of wisdom, you know, kind of a couple turns of the path in this, uh, in this particular talk. So as we practice, our view and our intention are undergoing development. You may have noticed already, if you've been practicing for some amount of time, that your views change as you do this practice and that also your intentions begin to change. And some people are initially kind of concerned about this. Oh my goodness, things I, I'm, I'm thinking differently now that I started meditating. But that's good. That's the sign that it's working. And uh, 
the path is intended to lead away from suffering, so this is a good thing. It's interesting to note, though, that since there is this developmental aspect of wisdom, wisdom in this practice is not seen as something abstract or something that you attain once and then you have it. I'm a wise person now forevermore. It's really more uh, something experiential that we do. It's a way of approaching, a way of being, a way of interacting, a way of seeing that is continually done moment after moment. It's a practice. So we'll begin with view. We live with many views, for sure. A view is is simply an, an orientation or a perspective or a belief that guides the way we think and act. We have views about the world. We have views about our relationship to the world or to other people. And we have views about ourself in particular, as well as maybe other areas, but those are some really key ones. For example, we may see the world as generally threatening or as generally benign or as generally frustrating. (laughs) And this is the view that we carry around with us. We may see our life in terms of our gender or our ethnicity or our sexual orientation. And this is something that we really feel is a pervasive way of of interacting, of understanding. We may see ourselves in terms of certain roles that we play. Mother, engineer, vice president, coach, student. So another way to think about a view is that it's a lens that we're applying to a situation that we're in. It shapes our experience in definite ways. If we walk into a situation with the view that we're a teacher, that's very different than if we walk into the same situation with the view that we're a student. Not necessarily good or bad or so forth. We'll get into the, the the, the right and less right parts of that. But it's really important to understand that there are these views and that we carry them all the time. We can't actually live without views. So it's not like we're trying to get rid of all of our views or ignore all of them or deny all of them. It's also helpful to know that we have collective views uh, in society. We have a view here in the West about how things are in a certain way that you might find is very different if you travel to a different country. Or even if you just travel to a different part of this country, you may find people just have a whole different way of seeing things that you hadn't thought about before, shaped by their circumstances, shaped by their history, by the collective culture there. And we are not independent of these. We are part of the culture that we grew up in in some way. Or maybe we never felt like we grew up in this culture. We always felt alienated from it or rejected by it. And that then becomes our view. That's them. This is me. I'm different. So we always have this way of understanding, this way of seeing things. And the real question for Buddhist practice is whether that's causing suffering or whether it's leading away from suffering. Some views are easy to see. So we're sitting in traffic and we're late for an appointment. We will likely have the view that the traffic is an obstacle. It's a problem. And we might 
this view, we may not be aware that that's exactly how we're viewing it, but when we speak on the phone to our friend, we say, it's a mess, it's a mess out here. Well, the word mess is a biased word. So our language has, um, come, has, has revealed the view behind how we're seeing the situation. It's so interesting to look at the, the language that we use or the way that we talk about things as um, an expression of what's going on underneath in how we see them. It's also interesting and important to notice that views change. I know someone, for example, who was a, a former athlete. Uh, that was very much a part of her understanding of the world. And then she had to slow way down because she got an autoimmune disease. And she just didn't have the energy, didn't have the stamina, didn't have the co- competence in her body, coordination to be able to do that. And so. At first, it was really unpleasant to go for a slow walk down the trail that she used to run on. And this was uh, an extremely depressing experience. Why? Because she had a view of how her body used to be, and now she saw it as relatively incompetent. And so this everything was wrong. You know, it's, this is not how it's supposed to be. Tremendous amount of suffering. But she was a practitioner and continued to kind of work with this. and. Over time, her mind adjusted, actually, and she began to notice that when she was going slowly, she noticed flowers and other things along the trail, all kinds of details about the fence and the trees that she had never noticed when she was running by really fast. So all these other parts came out that were now possible, that weren't possible before because she was doing something different. And so she began to see it as a beautiful experience. Um, nothing was actually different about her situation. She still had this autoimmune disease. She was still walking slowly, but her view changed in some way. And it wasn't that she sat down and said, now I need to have a goody-two-shoes attitude about this, positive mental attitude. That can be a helpful way to coach ourselves, but that wasn't a necessary application to the situation. It was just that her mind began to change and began to notice these other things. So views change. They're not constant. Views can also be quite subtle, though. They, they may not be that obvious, that easy to see, that easy to kind of sit down and analyze. We may need meditation to see clearly what views are behind our thoughts and actions and what deep beliefs are driving our experiences of the world. This is a connection between the panya steps of the path and the samadhi steps, the meditation steps. And I'll highlight other connections as we're going along. Gil says that people often report to him on retreat that they had no idea that fear was such a pervasive driver of their activities, for example. They'd just never seen it. You know, like the way a fish doesn't really notice the water. So we may be surprised what happens when we sit down in meditation and we we start to become able to see a little bit more clearly. Remember I talked about before that one of the purposes of concentration and meditation is to be able to see things as they are as opposed to through all kinds of lenses that we're not aware of. So this is all about view in general. What about right view? You know, what is it that the Buddha was talking about on this first step of the path? Well, the first step in developing right view is to be able to see our views in the first place. So that was, uh, that's why we needed to go through that introduction 
And developing mindfulness of views helps us to hold our views more lightly because the problem is, is not that we have the views in the first place, we need them to live, it's that we cling to the views that we have. They're, they're inflexible, they limit the way we see things as opposed to being used skillfully. So one particular form of right view that the Buddha highlighted is to use the lens of distinguishing what is wholesome or skillful from what is unwholesome or unskillful. What will lead to happiness and what will lead to suffering. So there's actually guidance about this from the suttas. I'll just read a quote from the middle-length discourses, although it's repeated in other places, not the only place it appears. Now what is unskillful? Taking life is unskillful. Taking what is not given, sexual misconduct, lying, abusive speech, divisive tale-bearing, and idle chatter are unskillful. Covetousness, ill will, and wrong views are unskillful. These things are termed unskillful. So that's pretty clear, and that's a nice connection between the sila, steps of the path, and wisdom. Here's the inverse. What's skillful? Abstaining from taking life is skillful. Abstaining from taking what is not given, from sexual misconduct, from lying, from abusive speech, from divisive tale-bearing, abstaining from idle chatter, lack of covetousness, lack of ill will, and right view are skillful. These things are termed skillful. So here we see that wise view means understanding ethical behavior. And in addition, we need wisdom to know what's ethically correct. So this is a connection between the Panya portion of the path and the Sila portion of the path. So this is kind of the first form of right view that the Buddha talked about, and it's something that we continue to work with as we develop our ethical conduct in the world. So the bridge between our view and our actions in the world is the next step called intention. So we have a view and then we choose to act from certain intentions which then has an effect on the world. The view that we have is the basis on which we choose to act from certain intentions and not to act from certain other intentions. So for example, if I have the view that taking revenge on people I don't like is a good way for me to be happy, then it will be easy for me to act on the intention to speak angry words or to do harmful actions to someone. If I have that view, then when that intention arises, I will act on it because it makes sense to me. It's part of my worldview. On the other hand, if I have the view that generosity is the way to bring happiness, then it will be easier for me to act on intention to give when it arises. So our view is critically important in shaping which intentions out of the whole field of possible intentions that there are in our mind. The view shapes which ones we actually do, which ones have enough energy to be acted on. So what about intention? It's important to understand uh, intention because it's a very, very important shaper of uh, whether we suffer or whether we move away from suffering because intention is what forms our actions and our speech. It's what creates our karma, essentially our kama. 
So right intention is also called right thought. Sometimes this step is called right thought. So it has to do with our, our thinking, our way, our attitude, our, our way of approaching the world. So one thing that we can do with right view is we can check whether our intentions are in accord with the purpose of the path, which is to bring us to the end of suffering. So we can use the perspective of right view, wholesome and unwholesome, to determine if our intentions are leading toward suffering or away from suffering. Here's a quote from Gill. It is not possible to end suffering if our intentions cause suffering to others or ourselves. We can't end attachments if we remain motivated to cling. So this next step of the path, right intention, involves cultivating intentions that lead to less suffering. And the Buddha did single out three particular intentions that we can pay attention to. (laughs) So these are called uh, classically renunciation, goodwill, and compassion. And so renunciation is not people's favorite word, usually. <laughs> um, but I'll, I think it's important to talk about it. It's about, it's about letting go. And it may not sound like something that's worth in, aspiring to, so it may help to know what the opposite harmful intention is that, that, is, it, that goes with the right intention of ren- renunciation. And that is typically said as lust. <laughs> okay? So it doesn't necessarily mean, it doesn't only mean lust in the sexual sense, although it includes that, but it means lust in the form of thirsting, grasping, that desperate feeling that I must have, I need to have something. So just saying it that way, you can begin to sense the coolness of renunciation, which says, it's okay, if it comes, if it goes, I don't need it, Um, I can let go of this. I can be easy about this. I can be content, relaxed. Uh, in a more positive sense, I can give. It's a you know, generosity, actively giving. So I hope this renunciation is a word that's intended to capture this constellation of feelings around contentment, of, of, being, of being peaceful. So that is one of the right intentions, is to, to have that attitude about the world, not have this attitude of lustfulness, wanting. So the second right intention, goodwill, also called loving-kindness, is just a general sense of friendliness or well-wishing for ourselves or for others. It's an attitude that we bring to situations of wanting things to go well, wanting things to be smooth, wanting people to uh, be happy. Um, it doesn't, it does, it's not a Pollyanna covering over of the suffering, for sure, or of things that are, might be wrong or that need to be pointed out. Not at all. Uh, but it's, a, it's an attitude of, of helpfulness, of, of uh, goodwill. And we can feel this when other people have it towards us, very different from an attitude that feels critical or that feels judgmental or that feels um, uh, cruel in some way, or ill will is the opposite, actually ill will, wishing that harm would come to another, wishing that something wouldn't work, wishing that things are difficult for someone. And then the third right intention, compassion, broadly speaking, is the wish to alleviate suffering. So we see the suffering clearly. We're not denying it or covering it over. We're not separating ourselves from it. 
And then we feel moved in our heart to respond in some way, to reduce or eliminate this suffering that we see. The opposite is cruelty, which means acting in a harmful way deliberately or being malicious or hurtful to someone. So I describe these at a top level because you know it's easy to see intellectually that the harmful intentions of lust, ill will, and cruelty are going to lead to our own suffering or to the suffering of others. That's really easy to understand. But when we examine our own hearts, we will discover less than pure motivations, won't we? Um, lurking behind our actions and speech are little acts of ego, little acts of cruelty, little acts of wanting to shut someone else down or wanting to hold back in some way. We find those things in our heart. So this leads us to the practice of right intention. When we begin to observe intention, we may initially be dismayed at the, the state of some of the unwholesomeness in some of our intentions. Largely, we're driven by pleasant and unpleasant. We may notice we really want to feel good and we don't want to feel bad in certain ways. And so, or the desire to be seen in certain ways or not be seen in certain ways. That's a big driver for us also. And maybe a little less often are we acting from pure intentions of renunciation or generosity, loving kindness and compassion. So the initial response to this may be to try to control our intentions. So to deliberately be good Buddhists, right? The, uh, the three right intentions I've been told, and so I'm going to make sure that I always, um, uh, always wise and kind and deliberately acting from the best place in my heart. This is now, this is, I, I'm, I'm only half mocking this. This is a good intention to have, of course. But what I'm saying is that it can be challenging if we're covering over and not seeing the harmful intentions and kind of pushing them away and denying them. They don't go away in that way. Suppressing or avoiding our unwholesome tendencies instead of looking at them and understanding them so that we can let them go. The practice is to observe what's actually happening. So the practice of intention is to see what's there and then to refrain from the ones that are unwholesome without denying or suppressing them. And of course to put energy into acting from the ones that are wholesome. This is right effort, by the way. Another crossover. Another connection on the path. So this is the real teacher, is the mindfulness that allows us to see that there are the unwholesome intentions there and there are the wholesome intentions there. That mindfulness, as opposed to our superego beating on us, that mindfulness is the teacher that helps to purify our intentions and make it more likely that we'll act on the wholesome ones in the future. These are the first two stanzas of the Dhammapada, as translated by Gill. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. So when we begin to see this for ourselves in our own experience, we will naturally incline toward more wholesome intentions. 
This is the iterative process, by the way, that we might call life (laughs) for a person engaged in the practice. We do things, we see their results, and then we recalibrate in some way as necessary. This is the practical and experiential wisdom of the path. Remember I said it's not something that you attain once and then you're done. It's kind of a resonance that gets set up between our actions and our way of seeing, our wisdom and our ability to act on that between Panya and Sila. So someone who is highly skilled in this kind of worldly wisdom is going to be someone who is generous, virtuous, learned, and usually quite happy. So we may know people who are very wise and skillful in this way. They excel at this first form of right view that we've discussed about seeing things in terms of wholesome and unwholesome and being able to act in ways that bring good kama, continuing good actions. These are exemplary exemplary people and worthy friends to have, absolutely. But interestingly, the Buddha pointed out that even such people have not necessarily ended suffering. The path does have a purpose. It has an endpoint, which is to lead to the cessation of suffering. So the Buddha actually described a second form of right view that's very important. He emphasized seeing things in terms of the Four Noble Truths. So this is a a crucial distinction of the Buddhist path that makes it different from other paths that existed at the time. Um, There was always, at that time, a concept of kama, of doing good actions and, and reaping the results of those. And the Buddha said, okay, but even really good kama is, um, is not the end of suffering. The end of suffering is, is to end kama, is to go beyond in some way. And so this is the lens that he offered of seeing in terms of suffering, its cause, its cessation, and the path to its, its cessation. So it helps us to dig deeper than good speech and, and good actions. A very helpful support for developing the noble view of the Four Noble Truths is a set of views that are called the three characteristics. These are used pervasively throughout the early teachings. And this kind of wisdom concerns a, a deeper seeing into reality, and it does require most likely meditation to come to full fruition. So this is the the importance of the samadhi part of the path. We have to be able to see into the deceptive nature of conceptual reality, conventional reality. From early childhood, we are trained to perceive objects as solid and separate, including ourselves as people. Meditative experience shows this not to be true, though, doesn't it? if we're pointed towards it. So a crucial part of meditative training is to begin to see all of our experience in three ways, with these three characteristics, as impermanent, which is called anicca in Pali, as unsatisfactory, dukkha, and as not-self, anatta. Most people have a basic understanding of impermanence. It's not uh, something that people would be surprised by if you went out on the street and said, do you think that things change? They would say, of course. (laughs) I know that. Uh, In fact, this is part of uh, daily life wisdom. As Gil likes to point out, that people can become very wise uh, by having lives that force them to understand a lot of change. 
big disruptions, big changes, big losses, big transitions, people who have been through a lot of that in their life have the potential to become very wise just from that. But when we see it at a very fundamental level in our meditation, so observing the arising and passing of thoughts, of very subtle little sensations in the body, we begin to question the very solidity of what we've always assumed to be very solid, our body, our mind, our feelings and emotions, our history, our perceptions, our views. And then we may also come to realize that anything that's impermanent like that cannot be a lasting form of happiness. How could we hang happiness on something that's arising and passing rapidly? It impacts the mind deeply when we see at a um, profound level things changing very quickly, fluttering in and out, and we realize this is not uh, a sustainable form of happiness. Everything will change. And in addition, such things are not suitable to take as an essential or separate self. How could it be that, that there can be an essence or something that's unchanging, something that's really truly permanent all the time in something that's changing? So this is said again and again in the suttas. This is the classic language that I'll read about it. The Buddha asks, What do you think, bhikkhus, which means us, practitioners, is form permanent or impermanent? And they all reply, Impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent suffering and subject to change, fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. No, venerable sir. So meditation begins to undermine our conventional perceptions, which is ultimately the the path to finding the escape from suffering. So this is the sense in which panya, and specifically right view, is the antidote to delusion and ignorance and wrong view. It's a sort of a penetrating kind of wisdom that can see through the way things are usually seen. At an intellectual level, this can sometimes sound um, difficult or scary or hard to understand. And that's okay, I think, actually, um, to look a little bit beyond the language. So this is why we're supported by other things on the path in undertaking this kind of practice. We're supported by faith, we're supported by the sangha, we're supported by energy and by our teachers, and by the the calmness and peace and uh, happiness that arises from meditation. All these things provide support for the mind to be able to Uh, see beyond what it's been trained to see for a long time. And what's interesting, I think what's really interesting to me is that when a person has developed wisdom in this deep way, and it's an ongoing process, they actually get returned to the first type of right view, which was living skillfully, remember? Wholesome, knowing wholesome and unwholesome. So a development of the understanding of the Four Noble Truths is actually what allows us to know at a deeper level what's good for self, good for others, and good for both. The very basic practice of being able to do good in the world 
the more deeply we understand this, these truths of impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and not self, then kind of the more open we become, the less, the less we need to cling. And the clinging is what causes the suffering. So the more able we are to bring those gifts, that generosity, that loving kindness, all those good intentions, the more able those are to come to fruition in the world, to help people, to help ourselves, to make the world a better place. So this is really good, what we're doing. It's opening us up. It's making us um, real gifts to the world. This is a quote from T.S. Eliot in the Four Quartets. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. So we arrive back at the first step of the path. View. How do we see this place? To know it for the first time. So, fruit. Let's talk about the fruit a little bit more then. Practicing the Panya steps of the path eliminates what's called the stain or the suffering of underlying tendencies. Uh, this is a continuation from the other talks. You remember that the, the sila steps eliminate the stain of transgression and the samadhi steps eliminate the stain of obsession. And the panya steps eliminate the stain of underlying tendencies. So it's about uprooting the very potential for unwholesome actions, speech, and thoughts. This actually points out why the samadhi steps don't go quite far enough. So we may... Um, we may become very calm, very still, very deep levels of concentration. When the mind gets to be this way, it's very, very pure and bright. And what's happened is that all the unwholesome tendencies have been suppressed. <laughs> they haven't been eliminated. They've just been suppressed, kind of put to sleep for a little while, while we're in this very powerful, blissful, open, uh, bright state of mind. And then the conditions for that, this is a conditioned state of mind, and so the conditions end eventually, and we return to some uh, different kind of consciousness. And then, if there's still those underlying tendencies there, there can still be unwholesome intentions arising. There can still be unwholesome actions happening if we act on those intentions. So the purpose of the Panya steps of the path is to completely eliminate the tendency, the underlying tendencies toward unwholesomeness. This happens by cutting down more deeply and seeing the, the Four Noble Truths, often by way of these three characteristics. So maybe we'll spend a few minutes then summarizing a few of the connections that we've seen in this, in this portion between the Panya Steps of the Path and the others. So there's the, the sense that right view means understanding ethical behavior. And in turn, we need the wisdom to know what is ethically correct. So there's this resonance between Panya and Sila. And then in addition, we've, we've noted that views and intentions can be very subtle, um, operating almost unseen un, in the, the depths of our consciousness, and then they come up into, you know, bubble up through in our actions and speech. And so we may need meditation to see down clearly enough to what's really happening down at the bottom of that pool of water, what's way down in the bottom there. 
So the development of meditation can kind of turn the ratchet on our wisdom to the next deeper level of understanding. So in a way, Panya is the fruit of well-developed sila and samadhi. It's a, almost a resultant, not something that we practice quite as directly, which is maybe why, even though it comes first uh, in the order of the path, it's usually that we talk first about sila, which is something that's easier to do at a sort of deliberate uh, level of effort. And eventually we get all the way through the samadhi and then we come back around and the result is the, is the panya. So I don't know if, um, if it's possible to summarize this holistic path in any kind of a concise way. I hope uh, all these connections have been you know, made clearer through the journey we've taken these last few talks. But a few phrases did come to mind, so I thought I'd just share them because they seemed meaningful to me. So we could say that practicing sila and samadhi is the transformation from common thoughtlessness to the purity of no thought. And practicing panya is the transformation from missing the point to pointing the way. Mm. So thank you. If there are any comments or questions, maybe you could use the microphone. Yeah, thanks for turning that on. Jan, would you wait for the microphone? Yeah. Thank you. So is, is taking the precepts um, something that people tend to do early in their practice? Is taking the precepts something that people tend to do early in their practice? Well, it can be an inspiration for people. And so uh, people may find that a, a meaningful kind of um, foundation on which to build. And so uh, that's often the way, it's, um, the way it's used by people. And in fact, the, you know, the Buddha did say that on the foundation of virtue is what everything else is, is built on. How do you see the precepts? Well, I think for me that would, I did that a long, long, long time ago. Yeah. And I felt that I understood a lot you know, I understood what I was doing, but then I kind of ignored the rest, <laughs> the rest of the Eightfold Path. I see. So that was your entryway. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. And did, did you find it, have you found that supportive over the years, that you had kind of formally taken the precepts in some way, and then that... I think so. Yeah, that helped to... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Faith. You might mention what the precepts are. I might mention what the precepts are. So there are um, typically five precepts that are 
uh, offered for, for lay people who want to walk this path. And these are not to kill, not to take what is not given, not to engage in sexual misconduct, not to lie, and not to take intoxicants that affect the body and mind. These are the five, what's so-called the five lay precepts. And it can be an orientation for our life, actually. And You may recall that when I, I read earlier, actually, what is skillful and what is unskillful, those included, those five precepts. And that's a, so it's a form of wisdom to take the precepts, Jan, by the way. So you were already practicing other parts of the path, whether you knew it or not. Yeah. Just hold it real close to your mouth. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have a question um, for the developing the right view. You said um, to um, get to the right view, we must first see the view. And a lot of the time um, about these underlying tendencies is that when we see the, the view and we notice the negative underlying tendencies, uh, we tend to um, judge ourselves or be disappointed or even condemn ourselves. And rather, uh, like, what, what is your um, advice on staying in the right path uh-huh. in, in, in the light of um, realizing all our limitations? Yeah, yeah. You bring up an important point, which is that what we find in our mind is not always beautiful. (laughs) And so then uh, you're asking how to not react against that in some way. Well, this is somewhat in the realm of um, intention, in that when we see the unwholesome intentions, it's important that we don't relate to them with unwholesome intentions. So, for example, the intention to... uh, destroy or judge or criticize, this is an intention of cruelty. And so if we approach our, um, our cruelty with aversion, uh, we're pushing it away in a sense. If we approach our lust with desire, I like being lustful, I like this about myself, um, we're, we're also not approaching it with a wise attitude. And so... Um, the attitudes of loving-kindness, of compassion, of renunciation. These apply even to our unbeautiful side. So we see that we are, have an intention of cruelty. We see it with mindfulness. That's a sort of an act of renunciation. We're just seeing it, not pushing it away, not pulling towards it, but letting it be. Don't act on it, necessarily. Um, or we even see it with an attitude of friendliness. Ah, oh, there you are cruelty. I know, you know, I know you're a strong habit. Come on in and have a cup of tea. I'm not going to act on you, but I'm not going to hate you either. Can you see that 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 attitude toward our own mind is going to be much more helpful than trying to control it, push it away, suppress it in some way. And so this is something that we can cultivate as an attitude of friendliness and of acceptance and of patience toward our own underlying tendencies. Yeah. Thank you. 
Yeah, Marie. I wait for the. I would like you to um, repeat the ending comments that you had, your summary comments, but use um, English words rather than the Pali words to denote the um, which stage of the path. Okay. Practicing ethical conduct and meditation is the transformation from common thoughtlessness to the purity of no thought. Practicing wisdom is the transformation from missing the point to pointing the way. Okay, thank you.